Fitz on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Yesterday, actually, before we get into this. Breaking news. You want to get into this breaking news? Because this is more fun. It has been fun over the last five minutes (laughs) since I learned this was a thing. Uh, Yeah, breaking news from Radar Online. Mm -hmm. CNN and secret talks to poach MSNBC stars Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski Uh. to fix the network's struggling morning time slot. Okay, you have to put this in the context uh, that we have been told for the past several months that CNN is trying to rehabilitate its reputation yes. as a as a real news real purveyor. News. We're Going not, back to their roots, they said. Yeah, we're not online entertainment. We're not going right. to be, you know, just sort of another DNC mouthpiece. We're doing the real news. How Joe Scarborough Man. fits into that picture is beyond, like, if, if this <laughs> is part of your effort <laughs> to return to real news, the state of... News in America yeah, it's, is it's even worse. Bad. Joe Scarborough writes like elementary school level essays for the New York Times about how beautiful America is and how we've all got to dream yes. the dream together. It's just, I mean, it's really, it is truly embarrassing. And Ugh. like CNN thinking, yeah, these are the guys. These, yeah. these, these are, are the ones. These are save us. And the Radar Online story says something funny too. It says that, that Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, and the morning uh, anchors should all be worried. Uh, listen, I agree with you 100%. Right. I used to watch Morning Joe every single day when Brian Becker and I were doing um, Loud and Clear. It is hard. Only because, and we used to joke about it, that I watch it so you don't have right, to. Right, exactly. And it was, like, I felt embarrassed for them sometimes. Yeah. They were so ridiculous. Yeah. Embarrassed. He's no intellect. No. He's not a newsman. No, he's he a, was big, a former he's a congressman. Big dummy. He's, he's a big just dumb a big dummy. dummy. <laughs> he's a big dummy. He really is. Like, is really like deeply, deeply steeped in the idea that the, the U.S. can do no wrong. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's just he's it, an exceptionalist. Yeah, and if this is who you want to bring in, it to, says a lot sh- about the kind of CNN that he wants. That I truly would Lick not wants to build. Uh, Don Lemon, maybe I wouldn't trade Anderson Cooper no. for for Joe Scarborough. No Are way. you kidding me? No way. I mean, Anderson Cooper is sort of a yeah. a little bit of a show pony. Yeah, but like he is. whatever he does, he also does real reporting. Yes, he That's does real reporting. That is wild to me. I, anyway, I would be very disappointed if this I hope to it happen. happens. I hope it happens. <laughs> I hope we have Joe Scarborough, and Mika Brzezinski on CNN. That'll be awesome. Uh, I can't yeah, wait. Yeah. I can't wait. What's John, hey, you and I could with... uh, maybe we could apply for the the morning well, show there's at MSNBC. Be an opening, right? Exactly. There's going to be an opening. Let's take this team, you know, on the road. <laughs> Fantastic. Can't Unbelievable. Um, you were talking the other day about uh, these executive orders that President um, Biden was. Oh, yeah. Planning to. Yeah. Yesterday, to yesterday, there were rumors that Joe Biden was going to start issuing executive orders on on climate change. Right. Today. Uh, turns out now the president is going to do what he likes even more than that, which is uh, issuing ultimatums. Right. Because that's worked so well for him so far. Right. He's tired of telling the oil companies to do this or that or else. And now it's going to be Congress. Right. This, yeah. this is the update from The Washington Post. It says today Biden is traveling to Somerset, Massachusetts, where he's expected to deliver an ultimatum to Congress on climate change. Take action or he'll move forward on his own. It's a risky move. For a president whose environmental agenda is stalled in Congress, 
Then it gives us this little tidbit that the House Judiciary Committee is expected to advance legislation that would ban assault weapons for the first time in nearly 20 years. While the move will make a statement, I guess, uh, the bill stands little chance in the Senate. So I had to yeah. include that as a little bit of a chaser. It's so we're going to get an, ult- an ultimatum yeah. that Joe Manchin is not going to care about. That's right. And then we get a sim- symbolic passage of a bill through the House. Yes. And this is what passes for and speaking, getting things done. Speaking of the House, mm-hmm. did you happen to see this piece in the Washington Post today about this obscure congressman, the Republican congressman from, I think he's, I think he's from Texas. Okay. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was testifying before the House Transportation Committee. Is this about the bicycle? No, no. Okay. Uh, it, it, he, this, this hearing had gone on for, for four hours, okay? And by all accounts, it was friendly and amiable and bipartisan in the substantive questions that Buttigieg was uh, fielding. And then they come to this Congressman Nye, who I've never heard of. He's a junior Republican. Hmm. And um, he asked a question about why the area, the the airspace above Disney theme parks is a no-fly zone. Legitimate question. I didn't even know that. No. Right? Legitimate And I'm not question. sure I believe it's true yeah, coming know. from the mouth of a junior congressman from Texas, but maybe. And then he, his second question was he wanted to know why Buttigieg and other members of the cabinet have not tried to implement the 25th Amendment and to remove the demented— Joe Biden from office. Okay. And Buttigieg was not thrown by it. I was, of -hmm. course, he's so bright. I mean, you don't have to like the guy or like his politics or whatever, but he was a Rhodes Scholar. He speaks like 14 languages. He's a very bright guy. I will interject here. I do not know why people are so quick to say Buttigieg is an impossibility. In the the near future. Oh, I don't think he's an impossibility. I don't want to vote for Pete Buttigieg, right? I do think he's a rat. Yeah. Uh, but he was more popular than anybody else. Oh, yeah. It was Pete Buttigieg who they had to get to, you know, it was Buttigieg and, and Bernie who they had to That's get to right. drop and, out and to pave the way. And, and so I don't his, know why. Uh, his unpopularity ratings are extremely low. Yeah, I think that I think that I mean, that, you know, I'm not I'm not a huge like horse race politics expert. Right. But I, I don't know why they sort of dismiss Buttigieg as a as a possible. Kamala can't do it. Well, of course, all these other people can't do it. Of yeah. course, Buttigieg. Uh, no, people, I, I would watch him. I wouldn't necessarily like put him up against Trump and and say he's going to be the victor. But like, right. he did okay. Yeah, he did. He won in Iowa or yeah. claimed to win in Iowa. Yeah, right. Right. It was close. Whatever it was. Yeah. But um, Buttigieg fielded this question and um, and said that he's honored to work with a president who is, you know, so bright and so intellectual and so this and so that. And and he's vibrant and he's, you know, healthy and all this other stuff. The guy tried to come back to it a couple of times and Buttigieg just shut him down. But this is the first time I've heard this in a public space, mm-hmm. like a congressional hearing. And I'm wondering if. It was just this one junior congressman who's trying to get on the news or if this was a trial balloon of a Republican theme that we're going to see more of as we get through the uh, the midterms and, and closer to the primaries. Yeah, I think that is definitely not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Also, about we should stop doing the we should stop beginning the presidential um, uh 
race in, in Iowa, it's stupid, right? It you is know, like stupid. it's it's meaningful to Pete one anywhere, which sure. is more than a lot of other uh, sure. contenders can say. But like, yeah, I just want to walk walk back how meaningful winning Iowa yeah, really Iowa, is. I, on a per capita basis, Iowa has the smallest African American population not in America. Iowa. Yeah. And so it's not representative of the country. And why should it be up to the people of Iowa to 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 winnow the the crowd? Yeah. It that the rest not. of us choose from. It it's, should not. It should not. Can I tell you, I want to give you an update too. We got a lot to get into. There's a lot uh, of stuff going on. Google, Google's launched its new, its new alert. Alert, things are changing fast. Uh, oh. And now it can't stop using it. It started with Hunter Biden. Are you kidding Yesterday me? was about Ilhan Omar. Today it was like, you know that a bunch of... Uh, Members of the squad yeah. and congressional Democrats were arrested in front of the Supreme Court yesterday. Right. They joined in a protest. They were blocking traffic. And so they got arrested. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot of symbolism, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And so I just wanted to refresh myself as to who was arrested or not. Put in squad members arrested, yeah. you know, knowing that's going to pop up uh, some results. Got the same alert. What? Yeah. Looks like looks like results are changing fast. Check your sources. Blah, blah, blah. Now, every day. Like, how about mind your own business? <laughs> Google. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you, did you watch the videos of those arrests? No. I'm not, there's a, I have a genuine question as someone who has uh, never been perp walked. Is there any reason to put your hands behind your back if you're not being handcuffed? No. A lot, a lot of the right wing media no. was on fire saying, uh, look at them pretends to be handcuffed. But they're not. I mean, they did. They did like walk. They put their hands behind their backs as they're being. Well, you know, the officer has a hand on the elbow. Neil yeah. Omar didn't actually. She just sort of walked across alone. And AOC, like, she has her hands behind her back, like she's handcuffed. Then raises her hand to <gasps> pump her fist. Right. So it's fine. I, they were not committing right. to the bit. But right. I don't know why you even start it. I wonder if there yeah, is a real reason you would walk that way. You know, I got arrested once in college on purpose. Um, I went up to the South African embassy. Yeah, I wanted to, to be caught with those drugs for sure. <laughs> no, I, I was protesting apartheid. Good for you. And it was a it, it was a one of the days when a whole bunch of people were there. Like some days there'd be nobody. Some days there'd be a half a dozen. This is one of these days where there were like. 30 or 40 people. Mm -hmm. And RFK Jr. was one of the guys arrested with us. It was about a dozen of us that got arrested. So I I, kind of knew I wanted to work in government somewhere, CIA, State Department, Capitol Hill. And I knew this could be a problem for me, but I felt strongly about it. So I've decided to do it anyway. So they told us you can't cross this line, which is one block from the South African embassy. You can't go within one block. Mm-hmm. So we step across the line and then the cops come and take us and put our hands behind our backs and they put the the plastic uh, flexi cuffs on you. Mm-hmm. So they put us in the car. This is D.C. police. And they drive us one block down Massachusetts Avenue. And then they cut the cuffs off and tell us, get the hell out of the car. Hey. And that was it. Like There was no paperwork. There was no nothing. Because they don't want that paperwork. No, it's not worth the trouble. And you got 17 members of Congress now charged with blocking traffic. Yeah. Well, somebody's going to have to stay at the office until 8 o'clock at night processing all that paperwork. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. And the the point was to get in the news. They got in the news. Mm -hmm. They made their point. Mm -hmm. So... And, you know, it goes back to, was it just to get in the news? Does it achieve something? You know, we, we had this discussion when Cori Bush began her. That's one of the questions I'm going to ask her, today. Her sit-in in front mm-hmm. of the um, 
it was on the steps of Congress, I think. I think the it was the on Capitol the steps, steps of Congress, yes. Uh, you know, and, and people were sort of uh, saying that she was stunting. But it did actually get something mm-hmm. done. It was a temporary, it was a partial and temporary measure, mm-hmm. right? But it did get something done, right? And I do, you know, Cori Bush has come up out of like, uh, street movements, right? And, right. and street protests. Oh, so yeah. She's a I don't, grassroots activist. You know, I think anytime you say, oh, you people, you know, what, what are you doing? This is all just a stunt. Like that is, you know, mm. there's a reason that people protest. That, that's how she made a name for herself. Yeah. They are, however, members of a party mm-hmm. that it has had several decades to do this thing that they are now protesting about. That's right. They are young members. So, but like, you know, and anytime you have people who have actual power, uh, taking part in these protests that are usually organized by people who don't actually have have that much power other than to organize and get into the streets. You, you know, you should raise your eyebrows a little bit, but Agreed. I'm going to say it's not. Uh, I think it's probably wrong to call it 100 percent stunting all of the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but they all got the, they got the photo up looking like they were handcuffed. That's they pretty darn it's, funny. It's pretty silly. Yeah, <laughs> that is very funny. Um, hey, we've talked about Malcolm Nance on we the show sure a couple have. of times. And, we love him. You know, Malcolm Nance is back in the States. And uh, a friend of mine, whose identity I will protect, uh, emailed me the other day saying, actually, here, I've got the email right here. He says, hey, uh, someone just shared with me your article on Malcolm Nance, which ran in the Sheer Post uh, May 12th. There's definitely trouble brewing over there in Ukraine. It seems that the legion, this foreign legion that Malcolm had joined, booted him. Um, he got into a dispute with a foreign woman. Uh, she's been doing an admiral jo- uh, admirable job, mm-hmm. uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, do you know anything else that's going on? And I said, no, but I'd love to hear more. And then he answered me today and he's. Said the mo- he told me the most fascinating story. Want to hear it? He says Malcolm Nance arrived in Ukraine with his MSNBC megaphone, which mm-hmm. we knew, and eighty thousand dollars in cash, which we did not know. The Legion was desperate. He was put to work immediately. He had an ugly parting of ways um, with one of his longtime background support people who had gone to Ukraine with him. Uh, The support person has provided information on Nance's activities in Ukraine to various top-tier U.S. news organizations. Uh, They've been able to confirm several portions of the story. Nance, in turn, has characterized his former friend as a Russian agent. That is is just insane. (laughs) And has tried to bully him with these news outlets. So here are the specific points that this guy is reporting back to me. Nance was in the Legion only from April 8th to July 6th. That's it. Less than three months. Nance pretended to have dropped a large salary and a comfortable life to, quote, go fight in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We said at the time he wasn't the success story that he has led people to believe. Mm -hmm. He went to Ukraine because he had nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. Foreigners cannot, quote, command in the uh, Ukrainian armed forces or in the International Legion. Nance has repeatedly claimed to be a commander blows my mind that you could suggest i with no military experience right he's never suggested (laughs) oh yeah he's shown up he was in the navy oh he was an intelligence officer in the navy still they're gonna let you command in their foreign army please in their sort of defense against this invasion okay all right nance is not a part of ukraine's intelligence apparatus which he has claimed to be i mean 
Nance was never the intelligence chief, which he has claimed to be. Intelligence chief of what? Who knows? (laughs) Nance was never in combat at the front. In fact, he never got anywhere near the front. No, I would not think so. Nance's claims of clandestine operations in Ukraine are unverifiable, and they never will be verifiable. Uh, And Nance's agreement with the International Legion was terminated before he left the country. We were saying this. I know we should go and get to our first guest. But honestly, how... It would be embarrassing to be like an, I'm, you know, Rachel Maddow has kind of gone off the deep end, but she does have sure. like a long history. She's written some good books, mm-hmm. right? She's, yeah. she, well, she has She's done, very successful. she has done like real work, right? Yes. Whether you agree with her in absolutely like his descent into insanity yes. uh, during Russiagate or not, obviously I do not, but still, man, that's gotta, it's gotta be embarrassing <laughs> to, to have to treat this guy like a legitimate expert on anything. Yeah. If you are anything close to a, a real journalist. And, you know, one of the things about him, too, and I, I promise to make this quick, is yeah, I've, I, I wrote about him in May saying that I've known the guy since 2000 or 2001, mm-hmm. maybe it was. 2000. And um, I've always known that he was a fake. I knew it from the, from the day that I met him. He was faking it. Mm-hmm. And when I went back to write my piece about how he's faking it, I Googled him for the very first time ever. And I found a dozen different articles written by a dozen different people who have worked with him in the past Mm -hmm. who have said that he's faking it. Mm -hmm. And now we have. And these are your experts, folks. These are your experts on these enormous, uh, very well-funded, profitable, you know, Money uh, networks that have all of the resources that they could possibly want to spend yeah. on on finding people with some real expertise That's who right. will give you some valuable analysis. And who who do they choose to platform? Yeah, oh, like Malcolm Malcolm Nance. Nance. Yeah, I told Tucker Carlson one time. I met one of his experts in the green room, mm-hmm. and I asked the guy. He was former CIA. He said, and I said, "Oh, me too. Where where'd you work? I was in uh, counterterrorism." I said, "Ah, me too." Would you do? He's a wet work, black ops, a special. I was like, dude, you're full of it. And I said to Tucker during a commercial break, I said, your CIA guy out there, he's faking it. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that they finally figured out that he was faking it. And he had faked it with a bank and convinced the bank that he was this deep cover CIA guy. And they gave him a mortgage based on that. And so now he's doing five years for mortgage fraud. Wow. Yeah. But I told Tucker Carlson, this guy's a fake. He Stop, doesn't even John, know the lingo. You're crossing over the line from being uh, deplorable to inspirational. You're going to have to stop. You're going to have to stop there. Okay. We're going to take a very short break and come back with our first guest. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay with us. We have a jam-packed show today. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said yesterday that Russia's focus on the war in Ukraine is no longer just in the east of the country. Lavrov told Russian state media that because the U.S. had provided Ukraine with longer-range missiles, the Russian military would be forced to push farther west into the country. Meanwhile, the European Commission is urging all EU member states to cut their consumption of gas by 15% until next spring. 
Gas rationing is also being considered in the near term. New legislation before the the European Parliament would allow the EC to enforce the 15% cut, which will severely impact European economies. And just to show you what a strange world we live in, President Putin announced yesterday that gas exports via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline would resume tomorrow after 10 days of maintenance. Nord Stream 1 accounts for more than one-third of Russian gas exports to the European Union. In other news, President Putin was in Tehran yesterday for meetings with Turkish President Erdogan and Iranian Supreme Leader Khamenei. Putin received strong support for the Ukraine war from the Iranians, with Khamenei saying that the West would have invaded Ukraine if the Russians hadn't. That was kind of funny. The Turks are walking a fine line on the issue, having sold drones to Ukraine, armed drones, but also refusing to sanction Russia. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin yesterday met with Greece's defense minister at the Pentagon, where he promised to warn the Turks to stop violating Greek airspace in the Aegean Sea. Turkish violations are at a 30-year high, and the Greek government is genuinely afraid of an accidental conflict. And finally, 17 Democratic members of Congress, as we told you a few minutes ago, including the members of the so-called squad, were arrested in front of the Supreme Court yesterday for protesting the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. They were charged with blocking traffic. We're going to talk about why that's important or whether that's important. We're joined by Jim Jatris. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. I'm glad to be back, John. Talk to you as well, Michelle. Good to have you, Jim. Let's start with uh, with Foreign Minister Lavrov's interview, Jim. He said pointedly that Russian forces would push west in Ukraine because of Kiev's use of these longer-range U.S. missiles, which, according to media accounts, have actually already been used successfully against bridges and weapons depots, the bridges being used to supply Russian troops. Are the Russians prepared to escalate like this? And what do you think such a decision would mean for the war going forward? No, it's it's hard to tell exactly what the scope of the Russian operation was in their minds at the beginning and how much it's it's expanded during the course of the conflict. Um, you, know, it, you, know, it, you know, I don't know if a lot of people noticed this a couple of weeks ago when President Putin said something very significant that I think very few people commented on, that they're going to expedite applications for Russian citizenship anywhere in Ukraine. I mean, this is essentially tantamount to a vote of no confidence in Ukraine's future statehood. So I don't know to the extent the Russians are saying, okay, fine, you want to play that game? You want to send a longer-range weapon? I guess we'll just have to take more of Ukraine, won't we? And how much they already had decided from the beginning they were going to beyond Donbass and maybe way beyond Donbass. Right. And, you know, and, 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 it, and then when you extrapolate to the global financial and, and economic system and they watch their opponents busily destroying themselves, it, it, I don't know how much they could have anticipated that and how much of that has sort of been unfolding beyond their wildest dreams as this thing is going forward. You know, there was a piece in the, I think it was in the New York Times on Monday saying that the Russians had come up with this plan to replace Teachers, did you see this? To replace teachers in in occupied parts of Ukraine with Russian teachers to teach now the Russian perspective of the history of of the Russia Ukraine conflict, not just this armed conflict, but going back you know years. Uh, and uh, yeah, that you know the Iraqis did that in Kuwait in 1990 after they invaded. It's kind of kind of scary. 
And uh, in mind, too, what uh, President Vucic of Serbia said recently, that the Russians are going to make some kind of peace proposal in the fairly near future. Oh. To be rejected, of course. Yeah. And after that, start the real war. That up till now, they've just been conducting, well, what they call a limited military operation. Yes. We haven't anything yet. Oh, that's fascinating. Hey, let me ask you about gas. Uh, Europe's gas supply is going to be a serious problem over the next year. Um, they import practically all of it. A cut of 15% will probably push Western Europe into recession. I'm going to assume that the Nord Stream 1 supply will eventually end. I'm going to even assume sooner rather than later. So, Jim, how does Europe function if that happens? How does it? How do they keep their economies going if their supply of gas just just dries up? Where do where do you think replacement gas will come from, and how long do you think they can hang on before uh, they they have to have a new flow of gas beginning? I just saw a report that in Germany they're encouraging people to stock up firewood for the winter. Oh my! Uh, which, given that not everybody has a fireplace, I'm expecting we're going to hear a lot of reports of house fires and carbon monoxide poisonings. Oh yeah! So the winter. I mean, this. I, you know, you say, how can they function? The short answer is they can't. And I agree with you about Nord Stream One. I, I'm a little puzzled about the Russian decision to turn it back on, uh, in the, at least in the near term. And but again, is that a long term thing? I, I have trouble believing that it will be, especially when leave. This conflict escalates. You say, how can Europe deal with this? The only way, in my opinion, is that they get rid of these these non entities uh, that are that are running these governments mm -hmm. and have somebody who's going to say, okay, the nonsense about this, you know, NATO, Ukraine, and all this. We need to do do what's best for Germany, do what's best for, for Italy, do right. France. And right now, they don't have they don't have government. Yeah, they have people who are basically just saluting smartly and, and in lockstep with whatever nonsense they get from Brussels or from uh, Washington. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, for much of the past week for this Biden visit. And one of the things that I always remembered about Saudi Arabia from when I first started going there more than 30 years ago was that gas at the gas pump was always cheaper than water. Water, it was more expensive to buy water to drink than it was to fill your car up with gas. I remember it being uh, like that in Vietnam, but with beer. <laughs> with and that's beer. why I had a, a stomach ache all the time because <laughs> <laughs> I was very thirsty and it was very hot and the beer was very cheap. And this time, uh, gas was about two bucks a gallon, which was to me dramatically high, even. By, or especially, I should say, by Saudi standards. Um, I haven't been in Europe in probably six months, but six months ago, a gallon of gas was eight, nine, ten bucks. Now, couple that with with fuel to heat homes in a European winter, especially in Northern Europe, and I don't know how their economies are going to be able to to withstand this kind of a shock. No, that's right. And of course, with the current heat wave, uh, whatever whatever hope they had of storing up energy for the winter is not going very well. Right. You know, and again, it's going to be not only just can people afford to heat their homes, how does a country like Germany maintain industrial production when they can't Good get point. fuel? So, you know, and they're going to get it from the Middle East. They're going to get Qatar or Saudi Arabia or from American LNG. I mean, this is pie in the sky. This is it, 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 it's a drop in the bucket compared to what the needs are going to be. And on the other hand, if they do start to play hardball with, really don't have much in the way of options. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Hey, tell us a little bit about this meeting in Tehran between Putin, Erdogan, and Khamenei. The Iranians expressed strong support for Russia, but the Turks, although the Turks have been generally supportive, didn't issue a formal statement. I thought that was kind of funny. What was the purpose, do you think, of Erdogan being at this meeting in the first place? Was anything concrete accomplished? Well, of course, it was a meeting of the what they call the Astana group, the contact yep. group on, uh, on Syria between Iran, Russia, and Turkey. So that was the formal reason. And, of course, Mr. Erdogan had to be there for that. Um, but I, I think you, you, you've put your finger on it that whereas the Iranians are clearly in the Russian camp, and indeed, you know, the whole you, concept that we're seeing, the Turks are hedge, hedging their bets. Uh, you know, they, they play this on and off again game about whether they're going to veto Sweden and yeah. into NATO. And, um, you know, I, I, again, related to what I just said about uh, about Europe, you know, for better or worse, Turkey does have a president who puts his country's interests first, not to mention his own personal interests, and is not subservient to Washington. For that matter, he's not subservient to Moscow either. Right. I Hedging his bets, looking his best opportunity, and essentially trying to get the most he can for himself and for Turkey. Frankly, that's his job, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, switching gears a little, you and I have talked uh, in in the past several months about the situation between Greece and Turkey. And, you know, sometimes I do it sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's becoming serious in the Aegean. Uh, Turkish fighter jets violate Greek airspace every single day. Turkish politicians have urged Erdogan uh, to attack Greek islands. And last week, a Turkish nationalist leader published a map that showed most of the Greek Aegean islands as part of Turkey, including Crete, including Rhodes and Hios and Samos. Most of the Aegean they had as a part of Turkey. Uh, The Greeks are genuinely worried. And the Greek defense minister, as I said in the opening, uh, met at the Pentagon yesterday with Secretary Austin. Uh, should the rest of us be worried? Do you think that there will be some sort of U.S. involvement beyond just a phone call to the Turks telling them to cut it out? And the short answer is no. You know, I, I can remember as long ago as the 1960s, relatives in Greece saying, well, you know, if the Turks attack, all we have to do is hold out for three because the Americans will, will put a stop to it. And we would try to tell them, no, they won't. No. They won't. If anything, they'll, they'll give a tacit blessing to the Turks, but they certainly won't do anything about it. Look, did they did NATO or did the West or the United States do anything? Cyprus, exactly. Seventy. Of course not. So uh, whatever whatever the the Greeks in, are saying to uh, Lloyd Austin or anybody in this administration, or frankly any other American administration, there was never going to be any kind of restraint imposed from Washington. Whatever the Turks are going to do, and this is where I think the new democracy government in Greece has really put themselves in a box because they put all their eggs in the American yes, bag right now politically. And, uh, and then they put, it puts them in the position of supplicants with hat and to the Americans to say, now, now, will you please save us from the mean Turks? Well, no, they won't. And, I, you know, to my mind, it, it, you know, again, you know, the Turks and the Russians have a, 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 an on and off again relationship. But I think to a great extent, sort of as we saw with the Nagorno-Karabakh War yes. years ago, there's probably more likelihood of restraint on the Turks that could be coming from now with respect to Greece than there is going to be from Washington. But I, as far as I know, the Greeks are not really playing that card or working that side of the street because they've decided that the sun shines from Washington. Yeah, I'm a little worried about that. There was an article on the front page of the Greek paper the other day saying that U.S. troops have arrived in uh, northeastern Greece in Thrace for the very first time, and they're they're there to uh, to do a joint exercise with the uh, 
with the Greek uh, army, and uh, the the paper was interviewing some of these soldiers, and and they were saying that the food is wonderful, and the scenery is beautiful, and the wine is delicious, and the Greeks are friendly. And I remember thinking exactly what you just said. That's all fine and good, but that doesn't mean that the Americans are going to save you from the Turks just because they like your food and your wine and they think the mountains are pretty. Oh, no. Yeah, it's sad, but I, that's a God's honest truth. Uh, Jim, 15, or 17, rather, I started saying 15, 17 Democratic members of Congress were arrested yesterday at the Supreme Court, as we said a little earlier in the show. I'm not really sure what the arrest was supposed to accomplish. It seems like, to me, it seems like closing the barn door after the animals get out. The decision at the Supreme Court's been made. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Blocking traffic's not going to change that in any way. Is there a Democratic Party strategy to ensure abortion rights in the aftermath of this Supreme Court decision? It can't be by blocking by blocking uh, whatever it is, uh, First Street you know, northeast. What What's the strategy? The, t- the toughest thing about such a publicity stunt is maintaining the pose of a persecuted dissident mm-hmm. when you're actually part of the fat uh, establishment. And, uh, you know, with AOC walking around with her invisible handcuffs. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Mm-hmm. Strategy. Yeah, they do have a strategy. They, they want to try to pr- pass some uh, federal legislation uh, that would, as they say, enshrine uh, odd choice of words, abortion rights uh, in federal law. I don't know how feasible that is, and whether that would itself be uh, passed muster with the court, at least with this Supreme Court, because this is, you know, without Roe v. Wade, this is a state question. Yeah. This is going to be fought in state legislatures and to some extent in state courts. So, yeah, I think they do have something of a strategy, whether it's a good strategy, I don't know. Jim, uh, I want to talk about politics for a minute. You are steeped in uh, in politics, uh, particularly Republican politics. We had a former Republican Party official on the show yesterday who said that he doesn't believe that Donald Trump can win the Republican presidential primaries in 2024. Last week, I noted a new economist poll that showed Trump with 49 percent support among Republicans. It seems to me if you're a former president and the de facto leader of your party and you can't poll above 50 percent, then you're in trouble. What do you think of Donald Trump's chances in 2024, assuming that he runs? At this point, I I think they're still pretty good. I mean, if you go out here into rural Virginia or for that matter, rural Pennsylvania in the last few months, you still see flags all over the place. Uh, He has a cult of personality among ordinary voters, including people who are not necessarily Republicans, but will vote Republican. He's the candidate. This is the same issue that occurred in in 2016, to a lesser extent in 2020. Of course, no official of the Republican Party wants him to be the nominee, and they didn't want him to be the nominee. In in 16. 2016. Frankly, I think they were relieved that that he he did not win the White House in 2020. Well, I, th- I think it's still a very uncertain thing. That's why I think we have these January 6th hearings to find some way to brand him legally as an insurrectionist so that he cannot ah. be again under federal law. And, and and again, I think he's going to have all sorts of problems he didn't have in the past with, you know, being being uh, excluded from social media and ability to really work the the media and the social media magic that he did that got him the nomination in 2016. The other thing, of course, is, OK, if not him, who? Right. Just, I mean, who's got that that bedrock of of of, of voter support that could challenge him if he 
to be to run in in in, in the next election. Well, tell me this. Uh, I think the comparison to 2016 is very important here because. You know, these establishment Republicans like Jeb Bush, for example, or Marco Rubio, they were so stunned by some of the things that Donald Trump said to to them, especially in the debates, that they they almost couldn't bring themselves to respond. When when Trump said that Rubio was standing in a puddle of his own urine, for example, uh, there was no response when Trump uh, called Jeb Bush low energy Jeb and, and sort of mocked him. Uh, there was no response. Do you think now after, well, at this point, six years, it'll soon be eight years. Establishment Republicans have figured out how to come back and counterattack Trump. I think figure that that out about as much as European leaders have figured out how to deal with the Russians. And the yeah. short answer is no. They have no clue what they're doing. I think they can try every dirty trick in the book to try to stop him. And uh, but I, I don't I don't think they have quite figured out the alchemy. All they can do, I think, is to try to find some way to contain him, and so that he can't really get his message out and he can't really seriously compete. But I think their biggest problem is they'd have to come up with a candidate possibly beat him among ordinary primary voters. Right. And I don't know who that candidate is, where they're going to find him or her. Right. I mentioned the last time that you were on the show that the Cook Political Report, Politico, and Larry Sabato's uh, crystal ball have all concluded that the Republicans are going to win between 10 and 25 House seats and retake control of that chamber. All three say that the Senate is leaning Republican. Um, that part of their analysis, I'm just not really seeing. The Democrats, to me, look strong in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and they look like they could hold on in Nevada, New Hampshire, and Arizona. Um, what are your thoughts, recognizing that this is an early stage of the campaign, we still have until November, what are your thoughts on the Senate? That's really where you spent so much of your career. Yeah, I think your analysis is correct. I mean, we need to remember a couple of things. One is, you know, the Democrats hope that, that the overturning of Roe actually will work through their benefit because it'll mobilize their base. But, of course, it will also mobilize the base on the other That's side. That's right. Realize that at the state level and so forth, that this is now a political struggle. And if you look at one-issue voters on something like abortion, actually that turns out the pro-life side even more than it turns out the pro-choice side. So I don't think that's necessarily going to help the Democrats. I think I think the, the bigger issue is, uh, you know, for one, you know, again, okay, call me a conspiracy theorist or maybe a, a spoiler alert. You know, there's another there's another wave of COVID or there's another lockdown or there's, you know, a return to, uh, you know, mass, you know, absentee and other mail-in voting. You know, I, I think there's a possibility for some that would would help the Democrats. Uh, you know, the 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 bottom line is is that, and the, the other thing to keep in mind is Trump's not on the ticket in 2020. Mm-hmm. A lot of that populist base that would turn out for him, people don't even know there is a midterm election. Yeah, so good point. So know that we're going to see the real outpouring of uh, you might say Trump populism in the Republican Party that would be essential. For these gains to be made, yeah, I think I think the the House is a very very good bet. The Senate, I think, really is a toss up, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrats kept it. Um, but finally, I've got to ask you about Nancy Pelosi's husband. He recently bought millions of dollars in Nvidia stock ahead of a congressional vote on funding U.S. production of microchips and the establishment of a microchip plant in the Midwest. I think it's supposed to be in Ohio. 
Um, this just stinks of a conflict of interest to me. And, you know, there was a flurry of news a couple of months ago uh, and uh, right around the time of the 2020 election about insider trading and using inside information to to buy and sell stocks. There are supposed to be laws to govern this kind of thing. Are there not? How is he allowed to to buy millions of dollars in stock ahead of a congressional vote that his wife controls. <laughs> Listen to you, laws to control this. <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, yeah, look, and, 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 and Hunter Biden is, you know, has paid for his expertise on energy. Yeah, matter. that's right. <laughs> the, the fact is, is that if you're a well-established political figure, and I'll say particularly on the Democratic side, you have immunity, especially when the FBI and the other law enforcement agencies have been so thoroughly politicized that, you know, uh, you know I guess we just have to assume that Nancy Pelosi's husband is this financial genius that has ever existed and that any suspicions to the contrary are just conspiracy theories. Amazing and disappointing. You know, just before we leave, I'll tell you, my lawyer told me once that one of the things he likes about me is that I've been in Washington 40 years and I still think that that uh, members of Congress do things or take positions on things because they're the right things to do. Sad. Jim Jatris, thanks for joining us. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and a former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take that short break and we'll come right back. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are checking in again on the weather conditions in the UK and how that country is responding to them, and a very timely rebuke uh, to that government on its climate package. We are also going to touch on uh, dangerous double standards on hacked materials and how you can report on them that some in the UK government are attempting to implement. Joining us for all these conversations is Mohamed Elmazi. He's a UK-based freelance journalist. He's a contributor to lots of outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Mohamed, thanks for joining us again. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Are you able to hear yep, me? We yep, gotcha. we sure can. We gotcha. Um, let's start with the climate. Uh, the UK yesterday broke high temperature records, uh, broke them on Monday and on Tuesday. The Guardian reports that London firefighters have had their busiest day since World War II this week. Uh, the death toll across Europe is climbing. And amid all this, the UK High Court ruled that the proposals the government had put forward to achieve its its net zero emission plan were too vague for the court to be satisfied they could actually achieve that goal and that the report on these plans that was given to parliament was also too vague to meet the secretary of state's duty to inform parliament and the public of those plans. Uh, And so this lawsuit was brought by the Good Law Project, and uh, the result is being hailed as historic. So I kind of wanted to start there. I mean, obviously, by all means, update us on how London and the rest of the country is coping with this heat, and then talk to us about how significant this ruling could be. 
Right. So um, uh, it. The heat was so bad, so the first ever uh, extreme heat uh, warning was issued um, the other day when this ruling came out uh, to the point that people were encouraged to not leave their homes and not take public transport. Uh, and uh, I was taking public transport mm -hmm. because I had various meetings to get to, and there were times when the system sort of shut down, although it's unclear to what extent mm -hmm. these various things are connected, mm -hmm. these various matters are connected. Um uh, you're right that there have been fires that have broken out, which is actually quite amazing, actually, if you think about it. Uh, I've grown up in places with hotter, you know, so the 40 degree, above 40 degree Celsius record was broken um, here. Mm -hmm. I've grown up with hotter weather, but that was in North Africa. Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite substantial to be having as hot weather here in the United Kingdom, where if you like, the system isn't hasn't been built for it, right? Mm -hmm. So the... Uh, you know, things can get quite cold in the winter, lots of old buildings, lack of, you know, it's the quality of things built as well when it comes to to housing. Uh, you know, ideally, all new things or new structures built should be able to keep cool in the summer and keep warm in the winter. Um, unfortunately, the constant price hikes when it comes to utilities and gas, which are we're talking about. Some people could see a two thousand pound increase in gas bill, and and the oh caps God. keeping uh, lifted, right? right? So there is a regulator that's supposed to address this, but the regulator keeps increasing the cap. Mm -hmm. So it's it's this weird public private partnership in that uh, the public pay for lots of it, but private corporations get to profit mm -hmm. from the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, if you look at the front pages. Of all the main newspapers, uh, I make a habit of whenever I pass by the news agents, the corner store, I'll take a picture of the front pages of all the various uh, main newspapers they're selling. And, uh, of course, everything about, you know, the heat and the fires breaking out is certainly front page. But you see a bit less reference to things like um, uh, climate change and global warming, which is interesting. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. And so in that context, you know, talk to us about this this decision that these plans. I mean, of course, you know, we watched COP26, right? We saw a lot of big promises and some pretty small and disappointing specific commitments. And so it would seem to be at least superficially gratifying that somewhere a government is being forced to to take back these plans that are, you know, like that far side math equation cartoon where there's a bunch of pluses and minuses and, and different signs and then a miracle happens. Right. And so it would seem that the result of this court case is that the government is going to have to come back with something specific. So is that what happened? Should we take some hope from this victory? So, yeah, I think we can do. Uh, I mean, so as long as as these changes, uh, as these policies can continue to be challenged in this country is known as judicial review, mm -hmm. which means something slightly different than the U.S. Judicial reviews when you challenge the uh, a decision or a lack of a decision by a public body or even it can include a regulator. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, uh, the the net zero sort of uh, uh, policies that get put before Parliament, this is under the Climate Change Act of 2008. And this was the UK putting into UK law uh, the Paris Agreements, if people recall the Paris Agreements. Mm -hmm. And um, much of this centered around the so-called carbon budget. A carbon budget places a restriction on the total amount of greenhouse gases that the UK can emit over a five-year period. And so there's various carbon budgets, and this one related to the carbon budget six for the years 2033 to 2037. Mm. Um, 
and which is supposed to result in a 78% reduction from 1990 levels of greenhouse gases. And uh, basically, the the judge said that uh, under the under the law, there is language imposing an obligation for the minister, the relevant minister, to set out policy measures for for meeting the numerical targets. Uh, and these uh, involve requirements to provide explanation and legally adequate estimates of the quantitative effects of those policies. Mm -hmm. And so there were a number of various things the judge determined, including that they've got to come back with something more specific to uh, explain how they're going to be able to uh, address the carbon budget or how they're planning on ensuring a 78% reduction in greenhouse gases mm -hmm. uh, uh, from 1990 levels for that time period. I mean, is this, could you see this as possibly the beginning of a process where, you know, this gets kicked back to the government, they have to come up with something more specific and something more um, adequate. If what they come up with next time is is equally vague, equally inadequate, presumably it can go back to court again. And so, you know, it does seem like possibly the beginning of a process that could result in at least a a plan that is reasonable. Right. And then you have to, you take the next step to, you know, how do you make sure that this plan is being enforced? Uh, and and how do you uh, you know how do you monitor for violations et cetera? But it does seem like you know the court ruling would seem to put some more power on the side of people who really would like to be able to pressure the government to to make some uh, to take some steps on climate. Yes, I mean I think that's correct. Uh, the judge gave them eight months to to come up with a final kind of. Uh, 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 report to to set out all the things that they had said the court had said they had failed to set out previously. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at uh, so uh, the Good Law Project were only one of the people who brought this case. It was also Friends of the Earth mm -hmm. and uh, Client Earth. Client Earth is a an environmental law firm here, which has brought many legal cases challenging uh, state policy for being illegal, right, for violating statute in terms of being insufficient. That's what we saw with uh, air pollution here. Mm -hmm. Client Earth sued the government, or under judicial review at least, uh, saying that um, the the levels of air pollution were so high as to violate the maximum amounts allowed both under EU law, we were a member of the EU at the time, but also domestic UK law. Mm -hmm. And they kept winning. They won at the high court, the, the government appealed, they won at the court of appeal, the government appealed, they won at the Supreme Court. So, uh, I mean, that's how bad the air quality mm -hmm. was. It was accepted by a, a joint parliamentary commission or a report that the UK has the second uh, worst air pollution comp uh, to, compared to any other EU country other than Italy. Mm -hmm. And that on average 40 to 50,000 excess people were dying every year because of the air pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, uh, it, there may be a back and forth. We'll find out. The government's request to appeal was denied. <laughs> we'll see whether or not they try going to the Court of Appeal to see whether or not the Court of Appeal will, will allow uh, uh, mm -hmm an appeal or whether they'll just accept it from now on and move forward. I mean, I have to say, John and I had a pretty dismal conversation yesterday on uh, the state of, of our oceans and oh, the yeah. uh, the speed mm. with which climate change could take us over. So it is, you know, on one hand, it, it seems like a promising process. And on the other, it is really hard not to mm -hmm. see it as, as very much too little and very much too late. 
Uh, so, <laughs> with that in mind, I want to move on to to talk about something else that I saw you sharing on social media. Uh, you, obviously, I as well, certainly John, probably a lot of people listening, have gotten uh, a few fundraising emails from The Intercept saying it is mm-hmm. pouring over a massive trove of data hacked from the Russian government, and can you please give us some money to help with that process? And what you have pointed out is that as the UK's new national security bill is currently written, right, or, or as of uh, state earlier this month, someone uh, convicted under the new offense of obtaining or disclosing protected information could face life imprisonment if they are convicted following a jury trial. And so I want to talk about how concerning this bill is and uh, and what it means you know, for journalism to decide that hacked materials from some governments are in the public interest, while hacked materials from other governments should be protected at all costs. Sure. So I wrote a, a, a an article for Consortium News looking at the National Security Bill 2022, which, uh, as you say, Section One. There's many, many sections in it. Mm-hmm. Even I, I, even my 4,000 word piece or what have you, wasn't able to look at every aspect. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's probably the largest <laughs> article I've ever. I've ever written or that's ever been accepted at that length. I thought right. Joe Loria was going to come back and say, no, you got to cut it by half. Yeah, Joe keeps mine all... between 700 and 1200. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that. I'll remember that. I really did thought that he was going to come back angry, but he he wasn't. He said, this is great stuff. So right. I was like, okay, good. There's just so much in it, unfortunately. But um, okay, this... Uh, so the offense, it criminalizes sharing, publishing, disseminating, et cetera, et cetera, restricted documents, not even confidential, oh not God. even classified, mm-hmm. just restricted. So that could be anything, anything. emails, basic low level stuff that have no classification, uh, but is, are technically restricted. And uh, conviction following a jury trial could be a fine or life in prison. And uh, the way they get around saying, oh, this isn't about official seek shacks, this is about espionage, mm-hmm. right? There's even a title above section one that says espionage. Um, they have the foreign power condition. And many observers, at least initially, seemed to, to, to be somewhat sanguine about this bill because they thought, oh, OK, this is just about espionage. Mm-hmm. But when you read the foreign power condition, you realize it, it, there's many ways it can be satisfied that if a foreign power uh, uh, is in any way, shape, or form involved in any aspect, right? Mm-hmm. That then the condition is satisfied. So let's say I work for a Russian-funded news outlet, just like uh, there are there are American-funded news outlets mm-hmm. and British and French and Israeli and so forth. Would that just be enough, therefore, to satisfy the foreign power condition? And now I'm facing uh, uh, possible life in prison for publishing. An article discussing uh, restricted information mm-hmm. because I work for RT. Mm-hmm. Or what if it's alleged that foreign power was somehow involved in the release of the information? Let's say a hack. Mm-hmm. They published it on a, a you know a website. I then report on it. Mm-hmm. I just report on the documents, right? I say here's this document that's been hacked, possibly by a foreign state. This is what it says. This information that's in the public interest. Mm-hmm. And now. There you go. The foreign power condition has been satisfied, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many ways it can be satisfied. You don't even need to prove any involvement of a foreign power. Uh, and so uh, I was arguing that this is quite clearly poses a threat to publishers, journalists, anyone doing public interest reporting, even everyday people potentially who've got blogs who report on restricted information. Mm-hmm. Um, it- and, and people should... Go ahead. Well, it almost feels like a sort of uh, they're trying to retrofit a justification for what is happening to Julian Assange. Right. right. It is really it is really interesting when viewed in that light. 
Well, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at it, there's so many similarities to the Espionage Act. For example, the old official secrets acts that uh, that this seeks to do away with and modernize, quote unquote, uh, the 1989 Act, which is left untouched for now, at least it only applies to UK citizens. Mm -hmm. But the, but this new national security bill and section one that I've referred to applies to any citizen anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So this is claiming wow. universal jurisdiction. Wow. Right. So. That's amazing. That's like how the Espionage Act, which I raise in the article, is being used against Julian Assange. Mm -hmm. It's also important to note that even members, certain members of parliament, one of them, David Davies, who's a right wing Tory member, but sometimes is OK on civil liberties. Mm -hmm. And he's critical of the Assange extradition. He opposes it. Uh, even when he said in parliament, and I quote him in the piece as saying he supports the bill, but as it is currently written, it could be used against all kinds of legitimate civil society organizations which uh, receive uh, at least some foreign government funding, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just my analysis, it's been raised in parliament. And there were even some sort of heavy criticisms of WikiLeaks, both by members of the Tory party and the Labour Party during the debate, mm -hmm. which is interesting because WikiLeaks is not engaged in espionage, right. Right? right? And yet that was somehow raised. So it shows you that's on their mind. Yep. And uh, the point I was making with that tweet that you refer to is just, yeah, there have been like 1.5 terabytes, apparently, of information, which is billions of, 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 of I mean, there's huge amounts of information hacked from the U.S. Gov uh, Russian government departments. Could well have been the CIA or NSA or GCHQ, either directly or indirectly via groups, hacking groups they've infiltrated. Mohammed, I want right? to ask you to stop because I want to, uh, we have to take a quick hard break here, but stay on the line. I want to invite you to finish that thought. Okay. We're going to take a quick break here uh, for station identification and we'll be right back with Mohammed Almazi on Political Misfits. without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are also joined by freelance journalist from the UK, Mohamed Elmazi. We had to go to that station break, but Mohamed, I wanted to ask you to uh, to continue your thought there on, you know, yeah, what exactly it means uh, when uh, some, some, some governments are allowed to be hacked by other governments, mm -hmm. uh, and it's fine, it's in the public interest, and, and others are not, as we, we've seen the Intercept sort of fundraising uh, off of its apparent trove of hacked Russian documents while uh, over in the UK and elsewhere, uh, it, it is more and more overtly attempted uh, to make reporting on any kind of information about uh, friendly Western governments a, a crime. So I wanted you to finish that important thought that you were uh, that you were expressing. Sure. So uh, uh, let's say that uh, there's something uh, I go through some of the uh, hacked uh, Russian documents. Um, documents hacked from the Russian state, the various government departments, and I read through, find something of the public interest, and I write an article about that. Let's say it was alleged or even credibly alleged that the hacking was done by uh, directly or indirectly or in conjunction with a foreign intelligence service, right? Which I think is, you know, it's realistic argument mm -hmm. that uh, uh, US or UK or, or another intelligence agency was uh, directly or indirectly involved in those hacks, mm -hmm. right? If Russia has on its books, and it might, I don't know, if Russia has on its books a law which is written the way the National Security Bill 2022, that's currently in the UK Parliament, is written, 
then I could then face or someone at the intercept could then face uh, between, you know, first criminal prosecution and then between a fine or life in prison for reporting on those documents. Mm -hmm. And even if, as, as I said, because it applies to all people everywhere, the national security bill, that is, um, if Russia has a similar bill, that would mean it doesn't matter that I'm based in the UK. I see the hacked information. I write an article. I publish it. And then I'm going off. I'm visiting Russia, say. Mm -hmm. uh, what's to stop me then from being arrested or prosecuted? Or I'm visiting a country with an extradition treaty with Russia. Mm -hmm. What's to stop the Russian state from uh, seeking my extradition so I could stand trial for uh, what, according to the UK National Security Bill, at least, is a form of espionage? So that's I'm trying to get people to see things in that light. But sometimes people need the counter narrative or the parallel example to fully appreciate the seriousness of these laws that are either on the books or in our case are being pushed through. Mm -hmm. I should also just make absolutely clear that there is no uh, public or journalistic interest defense or exception. There's no defense Jeez. to violating Section 1. So uh, I can't raise the fact that it was in the public interest for me to publish this material there is no defense. The question is, did I publish it or did I write about it? And if I did or disseminate it mm -hmm. or share it in any way, et cetera. And so this goes this could be used potentially both against whistleblowers, leakers and uh, journalists, publishers, bloggers and anyone else, frankly. Mohammed, I don't want to steal too much of your time. So I just want to ask quickly, do you think that this is getting the attention that it that it warrants right uh, from, from the public or from the press, really, who, sh who should be the most concerned? Uh, and and if it's not, why why do you think we become sort of complacent to this idea? You know, to, to this slow grinding process of of criminalizing journalism. I think a sometimes uh, uh, you know people are cooped up in their own world and don't have time to look. Uh, b there are so many things happening and so many regressive laws being passed. The Police Crime Sentencing mm -hmm. Act, which has now become law. Uh, um, there's the online safety bill, which is being pushed, which will uh, involve like heavy levels of censorship required of social media and even private messenger apps that have to look for harm, quote unquote, and even not necessarily harm that is illegal and censor it. Uh, and then, of course, who decides what that is? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be reporting of, of certain kinds. Uh, there are there's another digital communications bill uh, that's seeking to replace uh, uh a data protection act or our most recent data protection act i mean there's all kinds of of laws being pushed so uh, uh and people have to kind of sound the alarm and if if you're in um, uh if you're in a place where people aren't sounding the alarm then you'll just focus on other things i mean the ukraine mm -hmm. war has taken a huge amount of focus uh, uh as well as the tory you know interfighting uh, uh leadership debate so Part of it might just simply think uh, be that some people think it won't affect them, including journalists. Mm -hmm. Oh, this will just be about espionage. Oh, I don't work for a foreign funded outlet. Oh, I would never report on hacked documents. Right. So it's easy enough. I mean, let's not forget that while, you know, most mainstream journalists aren't investigative journalists. And um, as far as they're concerned, the documents that they report on that might be restricted material. Uh, well, they could argue, uh, you know. They wouldn't report on certain types of documents or these are – most leaks are actually official leaks, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yes. Right. Most leaks are leaks that are are being done with explicit authorization, you if you bet. like, of some government minister somewhere or some higher up somewhere. There mm -hmm. is highly unlikely that any of them would ever be investigated, let alone arrested and prosecuted. So it's mm -hmm. one of those things where, you know, official leaks will be fine. 
unofficial leaks uh, uh, face uh, serious levels of retribution. So I think that's certainly part, at least, of mm-hmm. the answer. That was Mohammed Almazi. You can find uh, his massive work on the bill that we've been talking about at Consortium News. You can also find his work in the Dissenter, at Jacobin, in the Canary, in Electronic Intifada. Uh, Mohammed, thanks for joining us again. Great to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. We are going to pivot, just go straight on through yep. to our next guest, because uh, I want to talk about some some interesting drug arrests. And get into a little bit the double game uh, that different U.S. government bodies are playing in our global drug war. We are going to talk about disinformation and Espanol, right? And how excited we are getting. Apparently, that's the next front. That's the next frontier. Uh, We're going to check in on some labor processes. We're going to get into some domestic politics. And joining us for all of it is Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney. He's a human rights activist. He's an author. His latest book is called Cancel This Book. The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start with this news that Mexico on Friday uh, arrested fugitive drug kingpin Rafael Caro Quintero, who the Washington Post describes as a top target of U.S. law enforcement, who was convicted in the 1985 killing, uh, really uh, brutal torture and murder of a DEA agent. And so Quintero was co-founder of the Guadalajara cartel. He had been serving a lengthy sentence for his role in killing this DEA agent when he was suddenly released in 2013. And since then, his recapture has been an obsession of the U.S. DEA, in, in the words of The Washington Post. And his capture is described as the result of collaboration between U.S. intelligence and Mexican law enforcement, although some pretty funny observations online, including the fact that um, a helicopter crashed right after the uh, the operation, killing tragically killing uh, 14 Marines on board. I saw uh, the president of Mexico issuing condolences about that. Uh, and also the fact that the hero dog has been highlighted in the uh, in the operation. Uh, people are taking those two as signs that perhaps the U.S. was a little bit more involved than just intelligence sharing uh, since, you know, you, you could say maybe typically shambolic. Uh, but what what really this really put me in mind of was the recent uh, arrest and indictment of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is the former president of Honduras, uh, who we were really good buddies with for a while. There are longstanding accusations that Quintero and the Guadalajara cartel were not actually as in as adversarial relationship with with some U.S. authorities as they would have us believe. Right. And these accusations, I think, are supported by the fact that the Guadalajara cartel dominated the shipment of drugs to the U.S. in the 1980s and was among the first to team up with major Colombian cocaine dealers because we know how deeply involved the United States has been with uh, that narco state for a long time. There have, of course, been many allegations that the CIA has at a minimum looked the other way and perhaps been complicit in drug trafficking efforts to support the right wing forces that we have covertly backed around the world. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what you make of this particular arrest and ask you about, you know, the the true nature of U.S. anti-drug efforts in South America in particular. I mean, in general, these arrests tend to be to be more political than related to drugs, because, as you say, the U.S. honestly doesn't attempt to stop drug trafficking. They just want to make sure that the people they like and that are they partner with are the ones benefiting from it. Right. So. First of all, we have to start with this premise. The world economy would collapse without drug money. Mm -hmm. 
There was a story in the Guardian newspaper a few years ago saying it's estimated about 50 percent, 50 percent of all the money in in, in Western banks is, is laundered drug money. Mm-hmm. OK, so wow. and everyone knows it. Wow. Right. And um, and so how, as you noted, so the U.S. and a good example is Colombia. So the U.S. has never stopped drug trafficking there. In fact, it spent $10 billion, $10 billion with a B, mm-hmm. dollars from about 2002 to about 2010, giving military aid to Colombia under the guise of fighting drugs. But in fact, after all that aid was given, the White House sheepishly admitted there was no diminution of coca uh, uh, cultivation, mm-hmm. coca being the raw material for cocaine, nor was there any diminution, not one ounce of diminution of traffic of cocaine from Colombia after the $10 billion is spent. Because again, none of it is is to stop drug trafficking, it's to make sure our buddies benefit. In the case of Colombia, they wanted the para- right-wing paramilitaries and the military to benefit and not the FARC, mm-hmm. right? So they went after the FARC and not these paramilitaries. And meanwhile, and, and again, the show Narcos, which is on Netflix, their first two seasons, mm-hmm. which dealt with Colombia, uh, are pretty good, by the way, very entertaining. They they honestly deal with the fact that while the U.S. did try to and did fairly effectively shut down the Medellin drug cartel uh, that was run by Pablo Escobar, and they did so because they were very unhappy with his pro-poverty, pro-anti-poverty measures where he'd give homes to the poor and right. whatnot, which is kind of antithetical to what the U.S. is about. So while they shot, you know, they, they shut him down and he was ultimately killed, uh, they did that by working with the Kali cartel, mm. who was allowed to continue drug trafficking. And by the way, the Kali cartel was run by the Castaño brothers, Carlos and Fidel, who would go on to found uh, the most dominant death squad organization, the AUC in Colombia, which the U.S. also worked with. And as you know, the U.S. literally, the CIA literally helped traffic cocaine into U.S. cities to fund the Contras. Mm-hmm. The CIA helped run uh, heroin uh, to, to support their activities in Southeast Asia during the war. Mm-hmm. And of course, in Afghanistan, the Taliban had uh, opium almost totally down to nothing at the time of the U.S. invasion. By the time we left, uh, yeah, Afghanistan that's was absolutely true. 85% of the world's heroin. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, it is always it it is. You don't have to look very far in the past of any of these big arrests to see, uh, you know, a history of uh, work with the United States. So, yeah, just a a very clearly a double game there. Sort of. I mean, I think that is probably somewhat of a useful uh, framework to look at this next question I had for you, which is to ask about the um, the new focus on disinformation in Spanish language media. The Washington Post had an opinion piece earlier this week saying fake news speaks many languages, but it's particularly fond of Spanish. And, uh, you know, we we have already seen a crackdown on Spanish language Russian media in South America, where RT uh, was particularly popular. Um, But this story is about the danger of the proliferation of right wing conspiracy theories in Spanish. And it mentions uh, this new officially bipartisan, but actually Democrat-led 
Latino media network that last month announced it was buying 18 major Spanish-language radio stations across the country with the goal of helping Spanish-language audiences, quote, navigate the ocean of information that exists in our society. And there was one funny line in the article that I wanted to, to uh, draw out. It's hard to know precisely why Donald Trump was able to expand his vote count among Latino voters in 2020 compared to 2016. The pandemic, the economy, immigration, conservative social values. But there's little doubt that the steady drumbeat of bogus facts and false narratives uh, buttressed by authentic looking videos played an outsized role. I mean, part of this comes back to this idea that, like, there can be no reason that Democrats are losing uh, minority voters other than that they are being misled by, uh, you know, so, some evil puppeteer from somewhere or another. It's not that they have simply been failing these voters and they are going elsewhere. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to ask what you think of this new focus on on Spanish language media and disinformation in that language. And, uh, you know, whether you think there really is a problem with conspiratorial and inaccurate information in, in Spanish media and whether this uh, new Democrat-led media network is going to be the solution. Well, look, I'm sure Look, there's a lot of fake news and conspiracy theories to go around, uh, certainly uh, from the right, but also from what is called the left, mm -hmm. though I don't think it is the left, but from liberals or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I mean, both peddle their own uh, fake news. I don't think it's particularly worse in Spanish language news, but I think the Democrats, what this is about is the Democrats are not concerned, concerned about conspiracy theories and fake news. What they're concerned about is, yes, they are losing Latino voters. They are losing black voters. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of blaming themselves for allowing the country, frankly, to fall apart, you know, doing very little to help working class people and poor people, uh, very doing uh, very, very little to uh, frankly deal with the pandemic, uh, even though they criticized Trump over it, they haven't done much better. Um, you know, there's a host of things that are happening in America that people are very unhappy about, and they should be. Mm -hmm. And instead of taking a hard look at themselves uh, in 2016, of course, they, they ridiculously blamed the Russians mm -hmm. for their loss, and now they're bl blaming fake media. I mean, th that's what this is about, is that they want to continue to hold power and to win, but they don't want to do the things. They don't want to engage in the policy making they need to do to win. And so I guess now they're going to propagandize the Spanish speaking community right. to try to get them back on board. Right. That's what this is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you about Nicaragua. Uh, you've been in Nicaragua uh, recently. You must have gotten back like yesterday or day before. Or I'm here. I'm, oh, you're I'm still in Nicaragua, Nicaragua right now. Oh, I'm awesome! Looking at the beautiful mountains and lakes out my window oh, here. Oh, yeah. fabulous! And and you've spent a lot of time there over the years. I wanted to ask if you could give us your insights into the political situation in Nicaragua. Last year, there were demonstrations about pensions and social security. Daniel Ortega was reelected, but relations with the U.S. aren't good. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you how things are going there, how the economy is going, and politically, how are things turning out? The truth is things are going very well here. Mm -hmm. uh, despite U.S. sanctions, and the sanctions are certainly very punishing, uh, Nicaragua expects to have about 5% economic growth this year. Wow. Uh, 
the polls show an incredible high support for the government. The last poll from MNR Consulting, which came out about a week ago, shows about uh, 70 to 80 percent support for the government. Wow. And so people are very happy with what the San Andonista government, and that's who's in power, is doing here. I was here for the celebrations yesterday. It was July 19th. It's the 43rd anniversary of the Sandinista overthrow of the U.S.-backed dictator Anastasio Somoza. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've been coming to Nicaragua since 1987, and I've never seen so much enthusiasm. Wow. People have been celebrating for weeks. And uh, I think there's a sense of relief here because the support for the Sandinistas is very strong, and they feel like uh, the Sandinistas are holding the line against the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would say things are pretty good here. It sounds like it. You've been going there. Did you say 1967? Happy to be here. (laughs) Did you say say you've been going there since 1960? Sorry, I've been, been, if I said that, I misspoke. 1987. Oh, okay. that makes more sense because I, I thought we were the same age. Okay, good, good, good. And, and tell me. You, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Thanks for correcting <laughs> That's okay. I was going to say, God bless, man. You look great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're doing great, man. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Okay. So tell me about Nicaragua's relations with, with other countries in the region. You know, because the U.S. has backed really military dictatorships so so many times over the years. There were conflicts between um, these U.S.-backed regimes in places like Honduras and Guatemala uh, versus uh, uh, Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, once they, they got rid of Somoza. Has that improved? Are, are Nicaragua's relations with countries in the region better now? Is and maybe that's a maybe that's a funny way of asking you if the U.S. is interfering less than it used to interfere in the past. No, it's interfering as much as possible. In fact, mm. I'll tell you, I just I just had breakfast actually with the Prime Minister of of Saint Vincent's, which is an interesting island nation here in the Caribbean, and he told me the last time he met with the U.S. State Department, the only thing the guy talked about from the State Department. Department for an hour was about Nicaragua. Now they oh stop Nicaragua, which the Prime Minister of St. Vincent's, by the way, has no interest in. Um, but no, the U.S. continues to be obsessed with Nicaragua and the Sandinistas and Daniel Ortega. And as I said, they just passed like, their fourth round of economic sanctions against Nicaragua since 2018. They're trying to, uh, the, as much as they can to undermine this government here. There, there now is talk of kicking them out of Free trade agreement. Oh, for heaven's sake! Um, that they have with 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 Nicaragua. So no, the interference is as great as ever, except to the extent that I think the Nicaraguan people are probably resisting it more than ever, mm-hmm. uh, successfully. And now, of course, Ortega, you know, was really forced to do this. You know, up until last year. Nicaragua did not uh, recognize the People's Republic of China. They recognized Taiwan. But because of all these sanctions, finally Ortega said, "Okay, well, so they they now recognize the People's Republic of China. They've signed economic agreements with them. Uh, They've now signed agreements with Russia. I mean, basically, uh, because the U.S. is trying to cut them off, they've now looked east like a lot of people have. And uh, 
They're getting support from China, Russia, and Iran. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it was a smart move and and they're going to be fine. Right. Um, I want to switch gears to Dan and ask you about um, about politics. Uh, you are a resident of uh, of the great city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, and you follow these issues. We had a guest on the show yesterday whom I asked about what appears to be a Democratic Party policy this year of quietly supporting the most reactionary, most right wing uh, Republicans running for nominations to major offices with the idea that they would be easier to beat in November. We saw that in Pennsylvania with the nomination of uh, of Doug Mastriano for governor. But Mastriano has a real shot of of winning. I mean, he's his poll numbers are strong enough that that he's a serious candidate. What do you think of this strategy? Am I too nervous about this? Is this short-sighted, or is, do you think this is something that might work for the Democrats in, in states like Pennsylvania? It's a terrible strategy, and, and all we have to do is look at the fact that we know the Clintons supported and promoted Trump. Donald Trump, that's right. They, they thought they could beat him. Yeah, they thought they could beat him so easily uh, that they actually pushed it his candidacy and a hope that he would be the person to run against because they thought he was the guy they could beat. And well, that didn't turn out so well <laughs> for them. And that's always a danger in these things. You know, you're, as we, we have a saying, you know, it's being clever, uh, too clever by one half. Yes. You know, um, and this often happens. People think uh, by, by the extreme uh, party or people, uh, uh, you know, rising to be your opposition that you'll be able to beat them, but instead you get beat anyway. And now, now you face even worse policies. Yeah. And of course, that is the danger here. Yeah, that's absolutely the danger. Democrats are really counting on Pennsylvania to stem the Republican tide for them in the midterm elections. Our guest yesterday said that John Fetterman is actually doing so well in Pennsylvania that he might actually have coattails that could. Um, go down into congressional races that that maybe there's a congressional seat the Democrats would otherwise lose. But because Fetterman is so popular, they could win that race. This to me sounds like wishful thinking. Fetterman is well ahead of Mehmet Oz in the polls, but the gubernatorial race is closer and the congressional races look pretty clear cut to me where no incumbents are going to win or are going to lose rather. Uh, because of gerrymandering and redistricting and the way they've drawn these boundaries. In the meantime, the state house and state Senate are going to likely remain Republican, which they've been for years. What do you think of Pennsylvania's role in national politics? Is it a bellwether and I'm just not missing it or not uh, uh, understanding it? Well, it certainly is a bellwether. I mean, I think by definition, I mean, it is a swing state and it has, at least the way I define a bellwether is that, 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 you know, it's a microcosm of the greater country, yeah. right? And so you have uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia on one end who, who you know, are typical of kind of democratic uh, bigger cities. And then you have the middle, which, you know, some have described as Alabama, right. uh, that tends to vote very conservative. Mm-hmm. So you, you, And of course, in 2016, Pennsylvania became critical, right? They went, it went to Trump by about 40,000 votes. Oh, yes really slim margin. So, yeah, Pennsylvania 
all eyes have to be on Pennsylvania um, in these types of elections. And in terms of Fetterman, though, I mean, honestly, have you ever seen the guy? He doesn't have coattails. I don't think the guy ever even wears a coat. No, but, I don't think he owns uh, a coat. I don't think. He, yeah, I don't think he owns a coat. I don't think he's as popular as they say. I mean, a lot of us kind of like what he stands for, but kind of thinks he's a poser, you know. Yeah. But we'll vote for him over Oz, of course, who is a, a charlatan, right? Right. He's, he's, he's uh, third candidate. And obviously a carpetbagger, right? He kind of oh, totally. came out of nowhere to claim he was Pennsylvanian, and no one likes that. So I don't think you can judge, uh, you know, the fact he's beating Oz. Uh, cannot judge from that that he's going to help other candidates, and I don't think he will particularly. And I, I, I do think in the end uh, it's going to be a very split state, as it always is, because it is a split state. It's as I said, it's basically three states in one, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, and uh, it's going to, you know, just because the demographic, it's just going to, you know, continue to be. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's right. Dan, before we let you go, I wanted to ask for your thoughts on, um, you know, the just the, the continued uh, small but steady uh, labor movement in the United States there. I, I forget the exact figure now, but there's been a pretty big increase in requests for union elections around the country. Um, you know, there are Chipotle is attempting to uh, to unionize Starbucks stores, you know, uh, falling by the day. It felt like for a little while we have this new attempt to unionize uh, workers at the U.S. Congress. We have ongoing negotiations between employers and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union that could be mm. extremely consequential. This is something like twenty two thousand workers on um extremely important ports on the West Coast. Uh, we have Biden, without very much fanfare, uh, stepping in to avert a rail strike last weekend in the United States. We have this ongoing strike in the UK. And so I wonder, you know, there was a period of time where uh, labor was in the news constantly, right? And every new effort to, to unionize some retail or uh, bakery center w was getting attention. And that sort of, uh, th that attention has waned a little bit, but it's still going on. And so I wonder what you are watching in terms of labor right now in the U.S. Well, truthfully, it's one of the areas that I'm most excited about. I do think that there is an incredible hunger in this country for unionization. And as you say, you're seeing it at Starbucks, I think a hundred Starbucks. Yeah, you know, it's dramatic. Unionized, you're seeing it at Amazon. Um, there is increased union militancy, and, and, and of course, because of what's happening in the economy, mm -hmm. you know, where um, in the in the, few, the last few years, the, the rich have gained that become four point seven five billion dollars. Uh, I'm sorry, trillion dollars mm -hmm. with a T richer mm -hmm. and uh, everyone else has become that much poorer. And so obviously this is going to lead the unionization. And it's interesting where some of the interest industries are organizing. I think Starbucks is the most interesting because what you have there are, you know, basically young college grads, mm -hmm. pretty hip liberal people, uh, though hoped for better jobs after four, a four-year degree. Um, but, you know, these are people went to school and they studied Marx and different things, and they're, you know, very happy to Unionized, and the, and they are the ones by and large doing so. So look, I, I think it's a very hopeful sign. 
I think, uh, you know, we have a long way to go to make up for the losses that we've had. And of course, even a hundred Starbucks, for example, that's not that many workers, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, they don't employ that many per store. But I mean, I, I do think this is real and I think it's, it's a great thing. And I, I, I hope it keeps happening. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? That's right. It may be starting from, from the bottom, but that's okay. It's a start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was Dan Kavalik. Well, that's where it always starts. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of a sort of naysaying, right? Sometimes when it comes to this stuff, like, oh yeah, okay. They're trying to unionize, but always remember where we are. It's, you know, it's unions were crushed. We're starting all over. Well, yeah, but at least we're starting all over. Right. That's right. 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 We've always had to start all over. I mean, you know, that's how it goes. That's struggle. Exactly. That was Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney. He's a human rights activist. He's an author. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about fentanyl Mm -hmm. and what the real fentanyl crisis is Mm -hmm. right here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. You know, appropriately enough, we have been talking about the the complexities and sometimes the dishonesty of our larger war on drugs. And now we are going to take a look at at some of that writ small in the case of fentanyl. Uh, We are joined for this conversation by Dr. Sheila Vicaria. She's deputy director of research and academic engagement for the Drug Policy Alliance. Dr. Vicaria, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Good afternoon. All right. I want to talk about fentanyl again. Uh, we, we have covered this for a while, but but mostly like fr- from a genuine, um, you know, we're having genuine conversations about public health. But I want to I want to talk about something uh, a slight step aside from that to start with uh, the latest. Uh, among the dumbest pieces of fentanyl hysteria probably uh, came up last week when a woman in Kentucky said she, basically she'd picked up a dollar bill immediately afterward. She claimed to have felt faint and lethargic and concluded that the dollar bill must have been tainted by fentanyl and that just by picking up, she had absorbed enough through her skin to send her to the hospital. This, of course, follows stories of police officers overdosing after brushing fentanyl specks off their uniforms. and you know, fearing that almost invisible invisible fentanyl dust could be carried home on their clothing and kill their spouses, their children, their pets. This, despite literature in multiple peer-reviewed journals saying you would have to huff quite a lot of, of concentrated fentanyl in the air to even get a therapeutic dose, let alone to overdose, and that the chances of an accidental exposure on your skin leading to an overdose are really low. Uh, The Health and Justice Journal, one of these peer-reviewed journals, as of 2020, found no known incidents of fentanyl exposure among police, accidental fentanyl exposure, resulting in confirmed overdoses. And yet, we have Republicans uh, the Lauren Boebert strain of Republican uh, attempting to classify fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. Oh. 
right? Leading to an official with the countering weapons of mass destruction office having to say, well, you know, that seems bad for a number of different reasons and actually sort of give a, give a response to this bonkers request. And of course, I do want to be clear that fentanyl can be a dangerous drug, and it is especially dangerous if you if you don't know it's in what you are taking, right? And so this is not to say that we don't have a fentanyl problem right now. It's just not the one that is getting the viral views. And so I want to talk about the real fentanyl problem in a minute. But first, I, I wonder, Dr. Vicaria, where do you think this sort of hysteria about the, the possibility of fentanyl being a weapon of mass destruction. Where is that coming from and, and who does it serve? That's a big question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's coming from a place of clear, like, powerlessness and helplessness, seeing our loved ones and our neighbors and our community members die. Mm. Last year, we hit Record numbers of overdose deaths in the United States, over 100,000 people lost their lives to an unintentional drug overdose. Mm -hmm. Roughly 70% of those overdose deaths did involve um, illicitly manufactured fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the past five years, the involvement of fentanyl in this crisis has only increased. You know, it's been the leading cause of overdose deaths around the country. Mm-hmm. Some parts of the country, like New York City, where I live, it's actually involved in almost 80% of overdose deaths. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think there is this fear that, you know, we are losing our loved ones and we are losing people in our communities and this feeling of helplessness. You know, what do we do? Maybe we need to crack down more. Maybe if we, um, you know, turn up the volume in terms of our response to this, that somehow we can wipe out this substance and Mm -hmm. save lives. And unfortunately, this follows the vein of our historic approach to to, to drugs in this country for over the past 50 years, wherein this tactic where if we try to address drug sales, keep drugs out of our country, crack down on drug selling, um, and, you know, reclassify drugs with more severe penalties that somehow we can get rid of drugs out of this country, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow that we can get a handle on things. But really what the research shows us is that we need a complementary approach that really actually looks at the people who are using the drugs themselves and how do we help keep those people safe? How do we help make sure that they are getting their basic needs met? Mm-hmm. The things that we can do, what are the strategies that we can do to make sure that they get the help that they need and that they know what they're consuming, mm-hmm. right? I mean, after over 50 years of failed policies trying to restrict our supply, the supply is only getting more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the more severe our penalties are, the more people we are sending behind bars, but our drug supply doesn't seem to be getting any safer. Mm-hmm. So this all just goes to show that if we want to keep, you know, if we want to see different results, we can't be doing more of the same. Right. I mean, it is wild to me to think uh, that we are going to spend all this time, as you say, we have already spent all of this time trying to restrict supply. We are considering, I mean, again, this, this will probably n- go nowhere, but it is just outrageous to even have someone attempting to classify fentanyl as a, as a WMD, right? Ridiculous. But like creating this um, terrifying uh, boogeyman, right? Yeah that is putting police officers around the country at risk that we need to treat literally like a like a weapon, right? Literally like a bomb. Mm-hmm. And yet I would suspect that the very people who are pushing this uh, are, are people who balked at including fentanyl strips and disposable pipes with harm reduction kits for, for public health programs. So on one hand, it's like you have to treat 
the the idea of fentanyl as an enormous weapon uh, that might you know explode at any minute and and kill all of the innocent people around it, but total disregard for the people who are already perhaps using fentanyl or using other drugs and and in harm's way, right, of, of ingesting fentanyl when they don't know it, right? There's a complete disregard for the people who uh, are the most likely to be hurt by this substance. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that sort of dichotomy. It's like, I mean, there must be a sort of uh, worthy or unworthy victimhood here happening, right? Where if you if you have not sought this drug out and you've somehow accidentally gotten it on you, we have to be really scared and worried about your safety, even though it is basically that risk at that level is, is imaginary. But if you are a person who might already be using drugs, whether, you know, once in a while, whether you are you, you have an addiction crisis, it doesn't matter. We do not care about you. You're, you're not a worthy victim, and we're not going to take even the most basic steps to to protect you. It's a it's a very strange um, dichotomy that exists in, in, in our approach to this crisis. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think it's not a coincidence, this selective kind of um, choosing of a victim, as you call it, because, you know, in the early days of this crisis, we had a very clear image of who we thought our overdose victims were. Mm hmm. Um, in you know, over 20 years ago, it was young people who were using prescription opioids, living in Appalachia, people who had mm-hmm. opportunities, people who had been preyed upon by doctors or, you know, who were overprescribed these medications. And, you know, and that was what mobilized a lot of people to think differently about how we were treating addiction because there was this idea of accidental addiction among these innocent victims who were being prescribed medications mm-hmm. um, that they didn't know the risks of. And, you know, what's interesting is that many researchers and advocates are now talking about how 20 years into this crisis, after losing over a million people to overdose deaths, the face of this crisis is changing in terms of who's dying of overdose. Mm -hmm. And it's increasingly a a brown or a black face. Mm. The CDC actually just released a report this morning. showing that even just between 2019 and 2020, overdose deaths nationally went up by 30%. But when we look at the increase in overdose deaths during that time period by race, actually between 2019 and 2020, we um, saw that black overdose death rates increased by 44%, and indigenous or Native American overdose death rates went up by 39%. And so this does come at a very interesting time where the racial disparities in who's dying and also the ages, what we see also when we look at this overdose data that just got released by the CDC, mm-hmm. these are largely people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are wow. all dying of overdose deaths. And so... The, the the age, the race, the demographic, where they live, mostly in larger cities um, on both coasts, um, is, mm-hmm. I think, another reason why we've kind of changed our target of who our victims are. Because, you know, of those 100,000 people who died in the past year and the people who've died in the most recent years of this crisis, they're increasingly minority communities for whom um, this this crisis is decimating their communities, and yet here we are talking about accidental exposure to fentanyl. I think that that's a really astute point that you make. Mm-hmm. 
The other thing I wanted to ask is, you know, you do hear more and more people anecdotally, you know, people want to go go to a club and take some Molly, right? Who are not people who are uh, necessarily who we would understand to be like habitual drug users or people with a drug problem, right? These people who are sort of casually and recreationally using different drugs. But, you know, somebody's got a test strip and all of the ecstasy actually is laced with fentanyl. You, you sort of hear these different anecdotes. And I wonder, you know, as as fentanyl does proliferate in the in the drug supply, uh, how how many of these deaths are really going to come from people who, uh, you know, who are just very, very casual, very lightweight drug users and how concerned people actually should be? Listen, when I was a kid, you know, you could do you could do drugs and you didn't really have, have to be to worry worried about dying. That the one, you know, yeah, that, that something was going to be in whatever you were smoking or snorting uh, was possibly really going to kill you. And I wonder if that if people should have a different attitude now. You know, and I think that what we need to understand, right, is that, you know, in the places where people are transporting drugs or in the settings in which people are packaging drugs, what often ends up happening is a lot of cross, you know, accidental cross contamination. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still some degree of debate on deliberate cutting of fentanyl into non opioid drugs, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a time for, you know, another kind of conversation. But I think that this is what happens when you don't have a regulated market. You don't have packaging, you don't have a label, you never know what you're going to get. And when um, people on the supply side are carrying lots of different drugs, they're using a lot of the same scales and measuring equipment, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, baggies can get mixed up, things like that can happen, or people can think they're buying one thing and they get something else. Absolutely. You know, it's not just the most heavy regular users, you know, people with addictions mm-hmm. or at risk, it's, you know, the, the drug supply, can't, you know, isn't stratified by race or mm-hmm. by user frequency or um, by socioeconomic status, right? Mm-hmm of us kind of have similar supply chains that we're getting drugs from. Um, You know, I live in New York City. There was a string of overdose deaths just um, within the past year among all of these folks who were part of some um, private Long Island party, um, including like a very famous chef. And these were Mm. who thought they were doing cocaine. So you do hear these kinds of stories. And I think all of this just goes to show that, um, yes, that no one's immune if you're engaging with the potential drug drug market in terms of knowing what you're going to get, um, and that we need all people to have the skills and tools to stay safe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to start talking about a regulated market for drugs. Yeah. And and this is kind of, you know, the, the elephant in the room, but really at a certain point, we have to think to ourselves, you know, if a lack of a regulated market is claiming lives left and right among our communities, recreational and occasional users, people with addictions... Mm-hmm. Maybe something about the supply is a better way for us to focus our efforts. All of the money that we spend on enforcement could be used for regulation, mm-hmm. for regulatory oversight, for monitoring, mm-hmm. and, you know, for ensuring that, you know, young people don't get access to these substances and making sure, you know, that people are educated about the risks. Mm-hmm. And it's actually worked in other countries. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we, we, we look at, at Portugal as an example and mm-hmm. Uruguay as an example, and that's actually worked. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask next. One, I'm curious about the, the the fentanyl problem globally, right? Whether this seems to be concentrated in North America as the sort of overdose crisis seems to be as well. I mean, the U.S., uh, our overdose death rate is uh, some quick research I did, I think, a couple months ago. It's comparable only to the rate of alcohol deaths in Russia, Right. All these other countries uh, who have their own, you know, problems with overdoses, they're they're not in the state of crisis that the United States is. And so I want to ask if we are also sort of uh, uniquely 
suffering in this fentanyl crisis? And also, if there are other countries or or states or provinces that you think are are handling this well, I, I know British Columbia uh, in 2023 is going to decriminalize uh, small amounts of, of uh, a whole bunch of new drugs. So it, possibly there are some places that we could model our response on if we wanted to. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions in there. Yes, sorry. (laughs) We're definitely not the only ones struggling with fentanyl at this moment. Our neighbors to the north in Canada are experiencing a fentanyl-involved overdose crisis as well. But it is still very much focused here in North America when we think of just, you know, the ravages of, like, having this adulterated drug supply. And, you know, when we talk about a place like Portugal, um, we're actually talking about a place that decriminalized drugs, which is, I think, another really important facet. So they didn't offer a regulated drug market. Mm -hmm. Instead, if you are found as an individual level user who has enough drugs on yourself for a two-week supply, a 10-day supply or so, um, we're not going to bother wasting our time and resources trying to arrest you when perhaps, you know, you are just an occasional user, Mm. might just need help getting access to treatment, or you might be looking for help with other services Mm -hmm. or what have you. And so what, what, you know, Portugal did that was really innovative is that they stopped treating people who use drugs as if they needed to be criminalized. And they said, you know, these are folks who may actually have other unmet needs. And when they did this over 20 years ago, they found rates of HIV and hepatitis C went down dramatically among people who injected drugs. They found that their overdose deaths started going down. They found that people were getting access to the services they needed and people were getting healthier. And, you know, we at the Drug Policy Alliance saw that model and we thought it was a really great one. And we actually were able to, in 2020, with the support of number of allies in the state of Oregon to pass the decriminalization of drugs Mm -hmm. is this component of the more you are criminalized, the more you are at risk, right? Because we know that when you get locked up for a drug-related charge, chances are you're going to get forced into detox or you might actually get access to an even more troubling drug supply inside our jails and prisons, Mm -hmm. which we know happens. And then when you're released, now you have a record. It's going to get in the way of you being able to find a good job. That's right. In the way of you being able to get good housing. You know, background checks are used in a lot of things. It can affect your ability to keep custody of your kids when you get released, all kinds of stuff. And so decriminalization is a great way to help ensure that people aren't getting saddled with records and are actually getting the help that they need. But when it comes to some of the exciting stuff that I think is happening um, in terms of a regulated drug supply, there's there's a movement in Canada, the Health Authority of Canada, which is kind of like the oversight body for medications that get prescribed in in, in the country of Canada. Mm -hmm. They decided at the end of, you know, the summer of 2020 that they were afraid of people using drugs violating lockdown requirements by mm-hmm. going to the communities and buying drugs. And they knew that people who are addicted to drugs may need to be out there buying their drugs because they had no other supply. And so the Health Authority of Canada at the end um, of the summer of 2020 said that doctors could prescribe controlled drugs like pharmaceutical forms of um, heroin and pharmaceutical stimulants, mm-hmm. people who use those drugs in order to keep them at home so that they would reduce the risk of contracting COVID. Mm-hmm. So now across the country of of Canada, I mean, it's not everyone's exercising their ability to do this, but there are physicians who and and nurses in certain parts of the country who are very actively prescribing and helping to maintain their patients on pharmaceutical grade um, uh, 
you know, drug supplies Mm -hmm. rather than having them turn to the illicit market. And that, I think, is a really exciting and important model for us to think about when thinking about the kinds of solutions that we need in a place here like the United States. Most of these medications, including fentanyl, um, can be prescribed and are used for a lot of medicinal purposes. And so, you know, what can we imagine in the United States for people who are dependent on the drug supply um, because they're navigating withdrawal, they're dealing with challenging life circumstances, mm-hmm. is there a way for us to offer them a safer alternative? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was Dr. Sheila Vakaria. She's Deputy Director of Research and Academic Engagement for the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go find more work by the Drug Policy Alliance? Sure. Um, You can check out Drug Policy Alliance at drugpolicy.org and on all of your social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at Drug Policy Org. Mm -hmm. Dr. Vicaria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We are going to go straight to a couple last headlines. John, somehow we have managed, we have forgotten to note that Elon Musk and Twitter, the trial is going to begin in October. Yeah. That's all we have to say, right? Elon Musk had asked that it be delayed or postponed or something, and mm-hmm. the judge said nothing doing. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be—that that might be fun when, when that comes around. Also, did you see the police accidentally released the guy who shot Lady Gaga's dog walker? I, I only saw that when you put it in. It reminded me of something I saw in one of the local, the hyper-local papers yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a guy in Arlington, Virginia who shot two construction workers and killed them last oh year. God. And the Arlington police accidentally let him walk right out of the jail yesterday. Yeah, this is what has happened to the, the guy who shot Lady dog, Gaga's dog walker right in the chest. Uh, and so now U.S. Marshals are they're uh, offering a reward for him, I guess, Ugh. information leading to his capture. Good but I mean, Lord. yeah, I will say, I mean, I guess mistakes do mistakes do happen, but. Yeah, that's a, it's unfortunate when this you let guy, someone involved in a violent crime just sort of wander out of jail. That's right. I, I like Gaga very much because she's different, you know, mm-hmm. and unique, and she owns it. I really love that. It's different um, if, and unique if you've never heard Madonna. Uh, Madonna. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> so overrated. Sure, but, you know. But, you know, I think she handled this whole dog walker getting shot thing very poorly. mm she never inquired as to the poor guy's condition. Hmm. She only, you know, raged on the news about her dogs having been dog napped. Oh, no. And I, I just felt bad for the guy. Yeah. Apparently, French bulldogs can get $20,000. I mean, there was some dog napping here. One, one of those dogs yes. was returned. I don't know if the other one uh, was that. ever returned. So it's very hard. It's very Crazy. sad to contemplate. Let me ask you a question, John. Do you want to hear about uh, signals from space or do you want to hear about giant sharks? I heard about the signals from space, which is fascinating. I, I think I'd rather hear about the giant sharks. Okay. This is a, this is from a story in The Guardian. It is very exciting. And by exciting, I mean scary for me. If I have an irrational fear that's not uh, rejection, it's sharks. Uh, I, I do get in the ocean and swim around, but I just like to make sure somebody is a little bit farther oh, yeah. out than I am, and so they can be the shark this, this year. <laughs> yes, I also was uh, was born very near the shark bite capital of the United States, so it's not a completely unfounded fear. But there is an em- emerging phenomenon of of mega sharks being created accidentally. Oh my god! Because of these protected no fishing zones that are being created in the ocean. Um, That's what we need. 
it yeah the these protected fishing zones mean that there is now in some areas there's abundant food where there hadn't been before oh and so these sharks tiger sharks are a third longer than normal in these areas or they've been spotted some of the biggest great whites ever recorded off Hawaii up to 20 feet oh my and the God. guardian helpfully notes that the great white shark in jaws was 25 feet. Oh, my gosh. Right? So these yeah. are big sharks. <laughs> they're taking advantage of this food. Um, you know, they're, they're chomping on all the fish. The sharks themselves are are uh, endangered. They're, they're protected, at uh-huh. least according to the Guardian. Uh, and so, you know, the, these... Oh, the other issue, these mega sharks. Uh, there's a new National Geographic documentary that notes uh, a, a very unusual situation where you had three great whites all eating a single whale carcass. Oh, my. And so normally you would see one great white shark eating one whale. Uh, one uh, marine biologist they interviewed said getting three large female sharks on a whale, that's different. The sharks must have been close enough in the vicinity to detect the odor of the whale and then all come together. Or... They're traveling together. Oh, even better. And uh, he says, listen, this is we have not been able to study or understand this because we really don't know very much about sharks. But I feel like I I would like to leave our listeners with the possibility that great white sharks are now truly growing to the size of of Jaws and maybe hunting in packs. The megalodon is back. I mean, I think the good news is you're probably not, I'm probably not that interesting to like a 20 foot shark if it can eat a whole whale. Yeah, John, you better watch out. (laughs) And I said, they're biting this year too. There's a guy bitten in North Carolina Mm -hmm. and Florida and California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, I think that, uh, yeah, this was a very exciting story. Uh, you want to talk about space anyway? Yeah. The space thing was fascinating to me because this follows this report. We, we talked about this right from the Chinese telescope, the Chinese fast yes. telescope that had reported getting a, a radio signal, like a, a radio burst yes. that was anomalous, right? From it, the stuff that you normally hear. Yeah, in They space. said it sounded like a heartbeat and where they usually last for a fraction of a second. This lasted for three seconds. Mm hmm. And well, now you have astronomers from Canada and MIT who have detected a persistent radio signal from a galaxy several billion light beers from Earth. This is another uh, fast wow. radio burst, which is, I think, what all of these phenomena are, right? A fast radio yes. burst. Uh, and this one is the longest lasting fast radio burst ever detected and has the clearest periodic pattern wow. ever seen in a fast radio burst. So maybe they really are. Maybe they're coming to save us. From the giant sharks. You have to say, considering our conversation yesterday that we had on like the the lack of food in the Atlantic, yeah, I'm I'm quite heartened at the idea of giant sharks uh, uh, enjoying abundant fish to eat in some parts of the ocean. I hope that's closer to makes for a healthy environment. Hope that's closer to the reality than I hope you're right than mass marine death in mm-hmm. a matter of years. Cross your fingers, everybody. (laughs) We're going to leave it there. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.